The EC Podcast exists to equip believers to make disciples and love others for the glory of Jesus Christ. My name is Jonathan Mitchell, and I'm your host for today. Today on the EC Podcast, we will be playing a message from our midweek Bible study. On Wednesday nights, we have been studying through the book of 1 Samuel here at Eden Chapel. A few weeks ago, our newly appointed youth director, Chase Schaefer, taught through chapter 5, and we wanted to share this message with you. We encourage you to listen, uh, be challenged by the truths that are presented in 1 Samuel 5, and we trust and pray that it will bless you. Enjoy. What's up, guys? Um, tonight we are going to be in First Samuel five. So if you guys want to kind of get ready and uh, kind of start turning to there, I'm actually going to turn there myself. So I'm going to read it real quick. Okay, so 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back on his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not, treat, do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that their tumors broke out to them. And they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought us around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. Then the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray. Dear God, I want to thank you so much for this night, and I want to thank you for um, just allowing us to come here and being able to open your word. I thank you for all the people here, God, and I just I thank you for just everything you do. I thank you for this passage and just being able to see 
your, your might, your strength, and your sovereignty in, in every situation, God. I pray that you would bless tonight, Lord, that um, you would give me the words to say. And God, I pray that you would just bless the service. In your name I pray. Amen. So, uh, As we read, I'm going to be in uh, 1 Samuel 5 uh, the, tonight. And if you guys were here last week, it's kind of a fluid story from chapter 4 of God's working with basically how he sovereignly works like, with his people who have sinned. And this week, we will be work, looking at the workings of God on a sinning nation who think they have defeated God. Uh, this chapter goes in depth into the character of who God is and his judgment, how he reigns over all people, and how he makes enemies his footstools, and will not stand for his name being mocked. Uh, so if you weren't here last week, I kind of want to catch everyone up to speed, just to make sure that we all get the context. We see in the beginning of chapter 4 a story of Israel and the Philistines are basically battling it out. Um, the Philistines were winning, and so Israel decided that instead of going to God to kind of figure out why they're getting defeated, they were going to kind of take matters into their own hands. So what they did was, is they went and they gathered the Ark of the Covenant and thought that if they brought out the Ark, it would, in a way, force God to give them the victory over the Philistines. And as G said last week, that the Israelites treated the Ark for their own means. Instead of attempting to, to try to get right with God, they used superstitious means. And we think of a thousand inventions but never God. So Israel sins and thinks that they can do things on their own terms to make God win the war for them, but this does nothing for them. And they are slaughtered and they lose the battle and the ark is now stolen and in the hands of the Philistines. God puts his judgment as well at the very end of the house of Eli and his sons are killed and Eli dies. So all this is pointing out to what Johnny taught on, I would say, the first week whenever he said we need to start be looking for some themes throughout all of 1 Samuel. Um, you see what God is doing where he is basically, he is sovereign over this entire situation, what's going on, God laying out his plans to do what he pleases, and then also points to the actions of men and their consequences of their sins and how the sin of Israel and Eli comes to the point where we see the repercussions of the lack of following God. So, so remember those themes tonight. It's really important to see that in, because it's all over chapter 5. So let's uh, again, let's read chapter 5, verse 1. So when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So we start with the Philistines, now have the ark in hand, they have, they have taken it away from Israel, and they are carrying it back to the city of Ashdod. And Ashdod is one of the five major cities of the Philistines. Uh, this city is importantly highlighted as the place where the god Dagon is worshipped. And if you see, they bring it there for a purpose. There's a reason for this. Israel has been defeated, and in their minds they have this prize, so the, the ark of the covenant, this great trophy... They're going to bring it back to give to their idol as, as sort of a, a thanks that they were blessed to win. And in the minds of the Philistines, I think they now have this great ark that once caused them so much fear. Um, back, in, back in chapter 4, we read, um, we heard the yells of Israel, and it scared the Philistines at this time. Um, the Philistines, when they see the ark, said this. This is uh, verse 7, 1 Samuel 4, 7. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. 
And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. And we have to see that in the Old Testament, God continuously uses other nations like the Philistines to carry out his judgment on Israel when they have turned from him. But the Philistines, the enemies of God, do not grasp that. They don't know the workings of God. They just think they, on their own power, they've won this great battle. So this is the first big theme, the sovereignty of God. The Lord has allowed Israel to be defeated. The foolish Philistines are thinking, look at how mighty we are, uh, but they don't see that they're just being used to carry out God's purpose. This is very similar, um, if you think about it, the story of Pharaoh in Exodus. Pharaoh thinking he has control by keeping Israel in Egypt. But this is what was said of him. This is Exodus 9, 15 through 16. For by now I could have put out of my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So God uses people like the Philistines to carry out his will and to carry out his plan, how he sees fit. And, and for a time, they, may, they might think they have the upper hand. You know, they're carrying it back. They're like, look what we've done. This is awesome. You know, Israel's been defeated. Look at everything we've done. We're, we're the best right now. They're on cloud nine, but they're only carrying their own destruction and judgment back to their home city. And so we need to reflect first that this great tragedy that has happened does not face God. God is never afraid or uncertain, but he is always in control. That is the God we serve. In our uncertainties in life, with things going on that we just don't know what's going to happen, as believers, we can rest in knowing that God is working everything for his purpose and his will. Sinners at time may think they have the upper hand, but that's because they don't know or understand and cannot comprehend the power of God. They don't understand that their own fleshly desires and evil doings are only leading them straight to where God planned for them to be all along. So let's keep reading. Let's go on to verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So now we have the Philistines here saying, look what we have. See the spoils of our battle. We need to give it to our God as a thank you for blessing us. Think, think, think of just how dangerous that is at this very moment. They, they, they walk up to their idol and they take the ark that, that scared them. They think they've defeated Israel and God and they set it there as a trophy before their idol. The issue is that the Philistines are, are blind to see that they did defeat Israel, but they did not defeat the Lord. So they set the ark below Dagon as a trophy and mocked it. But as God has judged Israel, our Lord will now direct his gaze to the people who are very lost. God will make his name known. He is a jealous God. He will not stand for this. He will not let people worship an image over him. He will not thought of him, be thought of as lesser than a creature that he created. God was the one who made the material that Dagon was made from. 
For this is what Isaiah says um, in chapter 45, 20. Gather together and come, assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood and who pray to gods that cannot save. Let's go on to verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So, so now God is basically getting started. He, he doesn't destroy the idol, but he topples it over as it should be in its rightful place to the ground beneath the ark. And this is to show, I, I really think, just one really important thing, the weakness of the idol. The weakness of being brought down and in its incapacity because it's just a material that has been carved it has to be picked back up. The idol is knocked down over by the Lord, brought to its knees off its man-made pedestal, and brought down to the ground at the rightful place to the ground beneath our Lord. And the Philistines, when they see what happens, go and lift their idol back up to its pedestal. As Matthew Henry states in his commentary, um, it's a little wordy, so just kind of bear with me, but I really like this. The priests finding their idol on the floor, make all the haste they can before it be known to set him on his place again. A sorry, silly thing it was to make a god of which, when it was down, one had helped to get up again. And sottish wretches, those words that could pray for help from the idol that needed effort employed by their help. How could they attribute their victory to the power of Dagon when the God himself could not keep his own ground before the ark. Reading the part of that commentary, it, it made me laugh. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> Sodish wretches. I thought it was really cool. But it's true. How could the Philistines put any trust or faith in a God who falls beneath the one true king? Psalms 135, 15 through 18 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The enemies of God are weak, not even something of a hindrance to God. They are bowling pins basically to be knocked down. Like the verse says, they cannot see, they cannot speak, and they trust that is given is in vain. We can see and we can understand the God we serve. The world tries to weaken us by telling us that the idols of this world hold, hold some type of power or that they, they have authority in line with God, that God is at battle with his opposition like he's struggling and just trying a little harder to win. Darkness versus light, but that's, all, that's not at all what it's showing us. Having a strong theology in today's time matters. We need to come to a true biblical conclusion of who God is. We need to understand who our God is by reading passages like this. In our churches today, I, whenever I was reading this, I kind of started thinking about uh, we have fallen into this misunderstanding of who God is. Today we have an idea. Um, it's a terrible theology, honestly, but it's a word called dualism. D-U-A-L-I-S-M. Dualism. It might not be well-known, 
but it's something that Christians believe, I feel like, sometimes without even realizing it. Um, as Ligonier states, dualism affirms that in, in the universe, there's basically this, this staging area, this, this like combat zone, sort of, for two equal and opposite beings who struggle with each other eternally. So we probably know that it's God and Satan, all right? And I want to talk about it for a second because it's important for us to really grasp that the powers of Satan or these idols like we read about here, that the Philistines have no power or have no equal power or any authority over God. But today, some Christians fall into that mindset without even realizing it, that God is at war with Satan or that Satan has more power than he actually does. Some believers, some believe that Satan's power can rival God's and God just has to really try hard to win his battles but that's not the case. I mean, think of salvation, right? How some people fall in this idea that God and Satan are at war for your soul. How God is just trying to get past Satan just a little bit so that he can hopefully save us. Or have you ever seen how some people believe that some sinners are too far gone? They're too far gone. <laughs> that's not true. It's not true at all. I, I mean, I've seen it on Facebook sometimes, like a meme where, you know, you see, uh, like, you might see it shared or something where God is sitting there at a table trying to arm wrestle Satan, you know what I'm saying, where they're like, they're, it's like, it's like, that's not it at all. That is not it. That's dualism thinking, dualism, that, that God is, he's just trying a little bit harder, and in the end, he's, in, Re- in Revelation, he's just gonna, boom, but no, that's not it. God is in control. Satan is like the idol who falls before the Lord. He cannot do anything out of God's control, and he does not act outside of the realm of God's sovereignty. When we as sinners are called by God, he, without struggling, will save his own. It's not difficult for him. No one is too far gone for God. No one is too lost to be saved. Like the idol here in this passage, God will crumple it. He will make the enemies his footstool, and Satan and evil is one of them, and God will do it with no exertion given because he holds that much power. And so we see that the worthless idols of this world need their weak people to pick them back up and set them back up on the stand. And we see in the next few verses what God will do to completely make his name known amongst those people who have blasphemed him. Let's read uh, verses 4 through 6. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So now we see that they can't blame a faint wind knocking over the idol by accident. (laughs) But it is the ark. God was proving the inability for the idol to do absolutely anything before now, but now he's not done messing around. The hands and the head are broken off, 
which in the custom of this time, if we think of like David and Goliath, what David did at the end, this time, it symbolizes the complete death or lack of life to someone. It reminds me a little bit of um, the first Avengers movie. I don't know if you guys have ever watched it, so think of Avengers. You know, I know we're like in-game. The first one's like way back in the past, but just think about it. Uh, Loki is basically trying to take over the world, and he's in the Stark Tower after fighting all the Avengers, and he's faced with the Hulk. And the Hulk and Loki are fighting it out. They're duking it out. And then he looks at the Hulk and he says, Enough! You are all beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature. And then the Hulk, what does he do? He grabs him and starts throwing him around and tosses him to the ground like a rag doll and just destroys him. And the Hulk walks away and it's the coolest scene in the entire movie. He's like, puny God, and then walks away. It's so cool. I love that part. But it's like that. That's what Dagon is. He has been brought back up to his pedestal, and then the next day they're like, oh, that was just the wind or, you know, something. Maybe, I don't know what's going on. And then he knocks it over and shatters it, showing that it is dead. And it terrifies the Philistines. They would not go near that pedestal anymore. They have seen what God can do and he has not even begun yet. The actions of men here is another theme that I talked about earlier that we really need to notice. The minds of the people, after seeing this display of power, what do they do? Do they, they say, wow, the ark has more power than our God? No, they still rebel. They still rebel. And this causes the hand of the Lord to be heavy on the Philistines. God has set his plan to be like this from the beginning, and he placed his judgment on Israel, and now it's the Philistines' turn by thinking they have won the day. Placing your trust and faith in anything other than God will only put you in judgment. You cannot think that you will defeat God. That's just not possible. He will be glorified. He will get his praise. He will receive his praise and honor as he deserves. And he will make his name known, whether it's by using us to complete his plan or whether it's by his own hand coming down like he does here in the Philistines. And God will make sure that his name is not trampled upon again. Another thing to note is that the Philistines in this chapter, this is very important, they recognize the power of God. They are brought sores and terror. They are terrified of what, their, of what their sin has brought, but they still do not turn and repent. They don't change. And why is that? Why is that? They literally, they, they even give it, they're like, this is God of Israel. This is God of Israel. Why do they not change? It's because sinners are going to sin. Sinners are going to sin. They cannot turn to God unless it's by the will of God to open their hearts. They can see plainly who the true God is, but they will not turn to him even when it's right before their eyes. They are evil and vessels of wrath, and God will make his name known by bringing down the destruction that they deserve. As Judges says in 10, 14, chapter 10, verse 14, that is crazy. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen and let them save you when you are in trouble. And this is perfectly just and right for God to do. We see the sins of Israel and how they at times do not turn to God, like in the previous chapter. But he brings them to their knees, bringing them back to him. 
And that is the difference God can do with one people, good things, and with others, what they deserve. That is the difference between grace and justice. And we're seeing it here in this passage, which God is in the right to do either, whichever he chooses. Because as we've seen so far, he is God. And so we see the judgment upon all the Pharisee, or Philistines sorry, in the area. Uh, verses 7 through 9, let's keep going. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had, been, after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. And so the, the people of Ashdod, after being killed and plunged into sickness and sores, come to the conclusion, we need to get this thing out of here. Like, get this ark away so we don't all die. And we see God is moving in this. I mean, God is wanting to be returned to Israel. I mean, we see it at the very end of this passage. And he's using the sinners, men against God, still to carry out his will and desire to be put where he wants. And the Philistines try and figure out what they should do, and so they decide to move the ark. Instead of letting judgment fall here, he will move it to another place to be judged, basically. And as they do that, what's happening? God's name, it's getting well known. People are understanding who God is. And the Lord's name will be more, made even more known. The God of Israel will be known that he is strong and mighty, and everyone will hear it and fear the name of God. So they move the ark to Gath, they move the ark to Gath and the same thing happens there. Sores, death, terror fall amongst the people. And people recognize the Lord and his judgment, and so they decide they have to move it again. And so we see in the next part of the passage, 10 through 12. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not, did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So with, this, with the Philistines basically parading the ark around and allowing God's name to grow, and grow in the areas, it comes to the last city of Ekron, where the horrors of what have happened to their city have spread. They heard it before it even got there. Again, we see the hardness of the hearts of men, and coming face to face with the Lord and not turning to him, their sin is great and their eyes are blinded by what their sin is. And this is speaking to the truly lost nature of man, how they can see what is causing their problems, their hardships, and their weakness of idols, but will never turn to the God who can make it all better. And I mean, does this not scream Romans 1 whenever we read through this passage? And let me read that for you real quick. Romans 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven amongst all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, 
because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I mean, these Philistines even acknowledge who God is. They understand who he is. They understand what he's doing. It's plain to them, but all they want to do is push out God and run from him. They are without excuses, and that is why it takes more than something in and of ourselves to turn to God. It's not something that the Philistines can do by by turning to the Lord, but they will always run and hide and try to get away from him. And that is why we don't believe when an unbeliever tells us, I've heard this so many times, that if God would write it up in the sky that he is there, they would believe. Because they wouldn't. They would not believe. They still would not believe. Because everything has been made plain to them. They would still run, and it's proving the, the total depravity of man in this passage. But thanks be to God that he has opened our eyes. That we have a God who will open our eyes and our hearts to who he is. That he would love us and that he would choose us. His people who would run from him and do everything we can to flee. But when it's his timing, God takes us and makes us his. Nothing can get in the way of bringing us to him when he sees it fit. So I want to end with this. When we are saved, we are drawn to turn to God. We can now do what the Philistines could not. When we are saved, we have been bought by the blood of Christ. And we can see the goodness of God. And we can look back and recognize the sinfulness of who we once were. We will struggle in this life, and idols will still come and will still struggle. But we can turn to God, and we can fight those things and get away from them. And we can go to the person who we were running from in the beginning, but we can see who, how good he is. We don't have to try and find some weak and meaningless thing to try to fill our lives with, but we have the living water that we can drink and never be thirsty again. We can read passages like this and be encouraged that our God is greater and above it all, and deserves all the praise and honor and glory that we can give. The Lord will be glorified. He makes it known here. Because there is no one like him, and no one who is as good as him, and no one who can do the things he does. It's something as Christians we can see in the story, and just be in awe of the workings of God. Let's pray. Dear God, I want to thank you so much for this night, and I want to thank you for... um, just allowing us to be able to just sit back and read and, and just see how good you are, how strong you are, how, how in control of everything you are, God. A God who we can truly trust that will never be knocked down by a fleeting wind or by anything else, God, but you are the one that stands true and tall above it everything. God, I thank you for, for, for choosing sinners whenever we don't deserve it, God, and, and just allowing us to, to have grace and mercy whenever we don't deserve it. God, I thank you for, for everything. I pray that small groups goes well. In your name I pray. Amen.
Thank you again for joining us today on the EC Podcast. We pray and trust that this message blessed you. This was just a small taste of what Wednesday nights are like at Eden Chapel. If you do not have a church home, feel free to join us with your family every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and every Wednesday night at 630 p.m. If you're outside the area, we encourage you to find a Bible-believing, gospel-centered church for fellowship and worship. Until next time, God bless.